We're continuing our series, The Glorious Body of Christ, and we're talking about what is the church's purpose. And since we reviewed last week, you all remember our church's purpose is? Okay, equip, that's one. Yeah, see, we make it easy. Evangelize, exalt. All right, so we said last week, that's really one purpose, umbrellaed with three under it. All of that is to glorify God, and we do that by exalting Him, by edifying, encouraging one another, and evangelizing our world. And last week we focused on the first one, exalting God, and we'll continue on that. But we were noting last week that worship isn't just an option, for worship is a command, it's even a call. God calls us to worship Him and Him alone. And we noted this is both an activity, an event, and a lifestyle. And we noted how people kind of want to make it one or the other. You know, today we often want to emphasize all of life is worship. Yes, that's true. But yet there is a special event of worship. And we noted then that God cares how we worship. The second commandment is saying, don't worship in this way. Worship in another way. And we looked at other examples where God does not accept all worship that's given, even in his name. And so... We said, though the Old Testament is more prescriptive, there are some principles for New Testament worship. Broadly, John 4, we said we're to worship in spirit and truth. And truth meaning in line with God's revealed word. In spirit, meaning not just externally, but from our heart. And as well, with through the Holy Spirit. And then we ended by reading 1 Corinthians 14, and we noted some other broad principles. From there, we said what we should do should be understandable. We should use language that is clear, is unvoiding unnecessary theological languages. And we don't need to be mystical like speaking in Latin. Um, Second, the goal is to build others up. We saw in verse 26, not to the exclusion of being understandable even to unbelievers. Because they should be able to come in our midst, it said, and praise God. And third, everything should be done decently and orderly. So that's a quick review. But... I want to ask a question, and most people don't raise this question, but by answering it, we're going to lead to two different paths of how we view the event of worship. And the question is, when we're in a worship service, are we creating an environment for individuals to worship, or is it a time that's specifically group worship? So when we're together worshiping Is what Keith and Corbin and I, as we structure it, are we creating a time for individuals to have their individual worship? Or are we saying we are leading a group activity? Okay, yeah, that's a good answer. Any other thoughts? Well, that's a great answer. She stole all the answers. Uh, (laughs) But I would say mostly today, most modern worship has moved more towards individualistic. And what I mean by that is, I don't know about you, but often when I'm somewhere, I'll hear someone say, you do whatever you feel led to do. Well, That is more of this idea that, look, yeah, we might be singing the song, but if you want to sit down and read a certain scripture, you go ahead and do that. Or if you want to, rather than singing this song, go do some other thing, that's fine. We're just creating this umbrella atmosphere, and within that atmosphere, you do what you feel led to do to worship God. Well, let's change the scenario. You know, if we're at a birthday party, I don't think anyone would say before they sing happy birthday, hey, while we're singing, whatever you want to do, You just go ahead and do that. So if you want to dance and not sing, that's fine. Or if you want to sit down for the birthday song and not sing, that's okay. Well, why? Because we're going, no, the point is to focus on for this, you know, 30 seconds. We're singing to them. We're all doing this together. And so I would say we've 
neglected that when we gather to worship, we, Keith, Corbin, myself, whoever else, is, are leading people. Now that's important because then if that's what's happening, then we got to be careful because we're not just asking, we're saying you need to do what we lead you to do. So we need to be careful that we don't lead you to do something that the Bible doesn't command you to do. So that's why people, people who've reflected on this and said, look, what we do in worship has to be clearly laid out in Scripture because we can't bind someone's conscience to do an activity that Scripture doesn't tell them to do. Um, and I think Stephanie brings up good points, though, because there are times in that corporate nature where there is individual reflection. We apply the sermon individually. We're going to take the Lord's Supper this morning, and there will be a time to examine ourselves. You know, that's hopefully not you examining your neighbor and going, yep, that's right, let me slip them a note of things they should be confessing right now. So it's not to the exclusion or one or the other, but I would say more and more our modern worship has shifted to the individual. We're creating just this environment, or some churches will say we're creating an experience. I'm saying, no, we need to go back to the idea that there's this corporate nature. Um, but let's dive into the essential details, and if you look at the big points, you can see it's read God's Word, pray, sing. We'll have a lot on that. Some say 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, because I didn't fix the numbering. Uh, preach the Word, give, and baptism in Lord's Supper. But nonetheless, first, publicly read God's Word. We'll pass out some scriptures. Stephanie, can you turn to 1 Timothy 4, 13? Um, I'm not going to have you all read Luke 18, 11. David, Acts 16, 13. Tracy, if you could get both those, then Acts 18. Sue, Acts 19, 8 through 10. Sarah, Colossians 3, 16. So the first thing is we should publicly read God's word. 1 Timothy 4, 13. Alright, so here, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture. Now, I'm going to pause. This was in my notes. Now, just because these are here doesn't mean that we have to do every one of these every time. You know, if we gathered and maybe we have prayer service, maybe we, I don't feel compelled that we have to sing every time. But these are things that should regularly shape our worship. And here, I would say not just a verse, but sections of Scripture. And again... Sadly, the reading of Scripture is being very neglected, at least publicly. Oh, that's boring, reading a whole chapter. You know, we want things that are going to be engaging to people. I want to pause there. You have on your note a warning, Luke 18, 11. You know, in declaring some things that I think the modern church is doing wrong, I don't say that to say, well, we're doing everything right. Uh, we can be very much like the Pharisee in Luke 18, 11. We can pray, you know, things like, God, we thank you that we're not like other churches. You know, we read Scripture publicly. We preach your word. We sing hymns with meaning and think we're better. So just because maybe some churches have gone astray and we're seeing where God should lead us doesn't mean that he's necessarily more pleased with us and them because some of them are like the tax collector beating their breast, maybe not doing everything, I'm going to put in quotes, everything quote-unquote right, but they're more pleasing to God than those of us who have everything just right if our attitude is one of pride and arrogance looking down on others. Um, but that being said, I think we can note that Many in trying to make their services appealing to non-believers or even appealing to lukewarm believers have watered them down quite a bit, um, have taken out any kind of depth because they want it to be easy for anyone to come in. And I agree with what Mark Dever says, and that is we really want to build a church where people who are wanting to grow and people who are seriously questioning the faith feel fed but people who just want to come and check it off would go that's boring <laughs> because we want to present who god is you know the instruction in first corinthians 14 is to be understandable not entertaining um and for those who love god his word isn't boring i mean now that doesn't mean every time we read it we're delighted but in general as they're fed the truth of god's word 
It's engaging. It's not, uh, why do we have to listen to this? Uh, but second, prayer. And one person said, I couldn't remember who, he said, prayer was so central in the worship of the synagogue that its location was called the place of prayer. Acts 16, 13, if you could read that for us. A place of prayer. And remember, the synagogue is gathering, which is the same word that's used in the New Testament. So, or we have Acts 18, 7 and verse 11. That's a great verse. I don't know what those have to do with prayer, though. Um, so let's keep going. Sorry. I think I didn't proof check myself enough. Acts 19, 8 through 10. Hopefully this one has. I think these are more to do with teaching. Yeah. Well, we'll pause on those. But throughout the early church, we can see often before they would get elders, they would gather for prayer. Um, I don't think it's prescriptive, but Acts 2, the pattern is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And so we see this pattern. Again, we've said not everything the early church did means we have to do it per se, but there is this pattern that the church is a place of prayer. Even Jesus said, my place shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. Um, and I, I think this is one thing even our church can grow in, in having in our gatherings on Sunday more times of prayer, something I've been trying to incorporate more in the beginning of the service. Uh, and again, as with what Stephanie said, this isn't just one person praying. This is us as a group. You know, in that time, whether it's myself or someone else praying, it's generally best since we're doing it as a group for them not to say I, but to say we. Because we are praying, not just that one person. And as we're up there now, that doesn't mean anytime they use I, they're wrong. But they're leading people. Say, we are coming to you, Lord. And so, you know, a good response, again, this is not something mandated in Scripture, is when the person is done praying to say amen, saying we agree, we're affirming that this is not just that person's prayer, but the church is praying together. Um, so, there's two quick ones. Now, some people will say these are boring, and yet, and, and they're seeking out to be seeker-sensitive, they say. However, as we might maybe critique that, what are maybe some legitimate things that we should try to do to make our time together enjoyable, understandable, and even welcoming to guests, even unbelievers? You know, I think... Sometimes we're so quick to critique, oh, we don't want to be seeker-sensitive that we don't realize, well, wait. There should be ways, just like at my house, I try to make it so when guests come in, it's understandable that they feel welcome. What can we do here to make believers, unbelievers feel welcome as they enter? Talk to us. <sighs> yeah, I mean... It seems obvious, but uh, there was one person, I won't say who, since we're recording this, but one person who came and I was visiting with them and I just said, you know, what, what would you like to see in a church? And they said, well, actually, I've gone to several churches. You're the first one who's ever talked to me. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, I mean, it could be, you know, there's lots of big churches and as we've said in here, there's nothing wrong with big churches. There's healthy big churches and healthy small churches and unhealthy big churches and unhealthy small churches. But if you go to one of the larger churches, it is going to be harder to get talked to because there, if you're going to have relationships, you have to plug into their Sunday schools or small groups. It's a different beast. Um, so I don't know what types of churches he went to, but you know, it's important to talk to those who come. Exactly. Yeah. Well, in that, I think we also need to recognize maybe we don't have a visitor, but 
Maybe there's someone who I don't know well, I don't talk to every Sunday. Maybe go talk to someone different because it's easy to, you know, some of us have a lot of overlap in our lives. Hey, we have lots of things in common. Well, let's, rather than talking to them, we're going to see them later in the week anyways. Why don't we go to that person who's been coming a few months and I don't know much about what's going on in their life. Even that can create a welcoming nature, not just to the first time guest. Oh, well, we've, we've talked to them. We're good. Um, and even today, got a picnic, so we can do that if it doesn't rain. <laughs> uh, what are other things we can do? That's one. Yeah, that's great. There has to be a balance in that, too, where they can be a little overwhelming, like where the eager beavers, there's someone new, and we bombard them and go Colombo and ask all these questions rather than just letting the relationship blossom on its own through just regular conversation. Yeah, I feel like that's always challenging because you want to say, hey, we want you to come, but you don't want to. Sarah's smiling. You want to share, Sarah. Like the first person was nice, the second person was interesting, and the third just seemed like, okay, we've we've only been here once. We don't know that we want to <laughs> drink the Kool-Aid yet. Just give us a little time. Um, I don't know. Is they like even talking like a part of you know like well, we're still? Uh, yeah, like they felt like we were already like members of their church. <laughs> Anyways, so yeah, there's balance there. Um, now, what might we, not, doesn't mean we are, what might we be communicating when we give time just to listen to God's word? That we value it. Yeah. yeah. His opinion is greater than ours. That sometimes we just need to be silent and listen. Uh, what might we be communicating? Now, again, I say might be because... You could just be doing it because that's what your church has always done, and you might not be communicating that at all. What might we be communicating when we give time to pray? <laughs> yeah, that we need Him. It's not how, you know, unless you've missed, we don't have some great strategy that's going to take over Wichita Falls. <laughs> um, you know, it's not our strategies or our wit or wisdom that's going to be uh, what's going to change things. It's going to be God. we got to spend time with Him. Well, singing is the next one. Sarah has Colossians 3.16, and Stephanie, we're back to you. If you could read Ephesians 5.18 through 19. And then if y'all could stay, at least keep a finger there, because I'll refer back to them. David, if you could turn to 1 Samuel 16.23. And we will look at these. Sarah, Colossians 3.16, please. All right, in Ephesians 5. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. All right, Martin Luther once said, I have no use for cranks who despise music, because it's a gift of God. Music drives away the devil and makes people gay. They forget all wrath, unchastity, arrogance, and the like. Next, after theology, I give music the highest place and the greatest honor. He also said, Next to the word of God, the noble art is the greatest treasure in the world. It controls our hearts, minds, and spirits. A person who does not regard music as a marvelous creation of God does not deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of asses and the grunting of hogs. Well, Luther's one to never say his point lightly. Um, that music is very powerful 
and we should joyously and we should act cautiously use it to honor God. Now I had David turn to First Samuel sixteen twenty three, and in this there's a time where King Saul was tormented, and yet something would happen that would help him calm down. First Samuel sixteen twenty three. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well. The harmful spirit. Yeah, so music soothes his spirit. And we see the power of music in by the fact that if you go into any major store, they always have music on. You cannot go into a major store in the United States today and not find music on. Well, why? Because they know they want to create an environment where you feel good. You can't watch a movie without them having music in it. You know, you would think, well, they're just acting. Why do we need music? Because music is powerful. The type of music that is played can help you feel happy. It can help you feel sad. It can make you feel angry. It can make you feel tense. It's da -da -da. You're getting closer. Music is very powerful. And it can incline us to feel a certain way. Now, however, the power of music is not just over our feelings but also our thoughts. And this can be used for good or ill. You know, in the 3rd century, the 200s, there was a false teacher in the church. His name was Arius. And he was teaching that Jesus was only a man. Now, his teachings didn't really convince those who were the teachers, philosophers, theologians in the church. But what he did was he convinced the masses through songs. One man writes, Arius, after his succession from the church, composed several songs to be sung by sailors and by millers and by travelers along the high road, and others of the same kind, which he adopted to certain tunes, as he thought suitable in each separate case, and thus by degrees seduced the minds of the unlearned by the attractiveness of his songs to the adoption of his own impiety. So, catchy tunes... Rememberable jingles were sung and disseminated through the people who traveled, sailors and those traveling on the road. So this would go out. And the songs led the masses to start believing what was untrue. So with that in mind, let's consider how we should orchestrate our songs and our music. And there's a lot that could be said here, and I'm going to deal broadly. And again, I'm not trying to say that we're doing everything right and every church that differs is some horrible pagan church. Not at all. You know, we're trying to look at God's Word and apply it to us. If some churches differ, well, you know, that's between them and the Lord. But first, our song should be filled with the Word of God. This is straight from what Sarah read, Colossians 3.16. How do you let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly? By singing Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's the manner in which you do it. So as we pick songs, we try to pick songs that are in line with God's Word. That's one reason it's good when possible to sing songs that are from Scripture. And so, you know, our general pattern, I don't know if you know this or not, but sometime in the week, hopefully before Friday, but normally Friday afternoon, I send Corbin and Keith what the sermon text is, what's the title, what's the outline, what's kind of the theme and that way we can pick songs that are reflecting where God's word is taking us and hopefully if the sermon is dense you at least get it through the songs oh what are we singing about well that's what we're trying to communicate or God is trying to communicate to us through his word and the point is that our songs focus clearly on God and that's important because many songs focus vaguely on God. But we don't want to speak vaguely about God. We want to be specific. You know, all most people still in the US believe in God. But we don't just believe in God generically. We believe God as he's revealed through Jesus Christ. And we need to be clear that our songs are Christian songs and not a song that could just be sung down at the local synagogue or the local mosque. That the songs are clearly about God as he's revealed. Now I want to Put a little caution here. Some people will then apply from this. So we should never sing about I or me. We should always sing about God. Because as you read the Psalms, there's a lot of times they talk about how they are responding. How they feel. So my point is not that we can't ever sing about ourselves. 
But that should always be in line with how we're responding to God. So, a little caution there. Second, we should remember that the, this is the back of the page, by the way, that the primary audience is God. And so, ultimately, I'm more concerned about what does he think of my singing than what does everyone else around me. Uh, but third, and we've noted this a couple times in the sermons lately, this, we're also singing to each other. You know, Ephesians 5.19 says we address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, that doesn't mean we're a walking musical where they say something and I respond in a song. You know, it means that, hey, as we're singing, we let them know that, hey, this truth is meaningful to me. And we sometimes know what's going on in other people's life. And as they sing joyfully about their trials, that can encourage us that, hey, look, look how I know what they're going through, and yet they're delighting in God's Word. Or they're joyful, and they're using their joy to delight in God. You know, how we sing, our confidence and joy can bring confidence and joy to others. On the flip side, people's boredom, their lack of interest is speaking a message too. You know, it's often hard to steer one way or the other if you're especially true youth groups if you have a youth group that doesn't want to sing it's contagious well, i don't want to be the one singing but no we but it, if everyone else sings it's easier to do so a uh, fourth what pleases god is people praising him now that may seem straightforward in what we've already said but i think the application of it is at least one area where there's a lot of debate in the church and that is because if it's true that what pleases God is people singing, then I think that's going to set the parameters for our styles of song and instrumentation. Now, before jumping into that, I think we need to note that in our culture, especially men, we don't generally sing. You can go to some cultures, when they go to the bar, pub, they sing. When they go to their ball games, they sing. You know, we normally only sing at the seventh inning stretch or the national anthem. But we're not a singing culture as much as other cultures around the world. So that means when we gather, people are going to be less prone to sing. So we've got to realize that up front. But we also have to realize that it goes deeper than our culture. And, that is, and because that's true, that should affect our songs that we pick and the instrumentation we use. What I mean by that is the song you love on the radio, Christian radio, most likely is not going to be a song we can sing. Well, that's because those people can sing way higher than we can or way lower. Or in their song, they do something that doesn't normally happen. You know, it's fine for them to break off on something. But when we lead people, we want them to, to kind of know where the notes are going so they can sing along. We don't want notes that are so high that only a few can hit them. Um, and so, you know, we need to think about what instrumentation we use, what type of songs to pick. And we also need to pick songs in an environment that encourage rather than discourage singing. Now, I'm going to leave that up to each church. For some churches, loud music might encourage singing. It might be that that age group, that subculture in the U.S. is going to sing better and they're going to sing louder if... It's blaring. For others, the louder it is, the more they go, well, what's the point? No one can even hear me. And so each church needs to figure that out. But what the leaders who are doing the playing, the instrumentation need to figure out is, how can we lead these people in worship? And again, that's not always going to play out exactly the same in every church. But for our local congregation, is cranking the volume up going to be helpful or harmful? And there's churches where that could probably go either way. So I'm not here, look at those who have it louder. Look at those who have it quiet. You know, we need to pick, you know, if you have an older congregation, you're probably not going to be helpful if you crank it up. On the flip side, if you have a con younger congregation, you might not be helpful if you turn it down. That's something that people have to figure out within their local context. You know, some people might find an organ extremely distracting. What in the world? Why are you using that? Some people might find a guitar completely distracting. You know, so those are all types of questions that this should lead us to ask, though. You know, if we bring this in, this instrument, are half the people the whole time going to be frowning? Why are we doing this? 
Or is this just a natural part of this culture that's going to go, oh, that's what we use for instrumentation when we sing songs. Um, so I'm hopefully leaving a lot of leeway that there's a principle. The principle is what instruments, what, and in that, what styles, songs, what volume is going to help these people sing. And that can vary per culture and even within a country. Uh, that being said, I've appreciated how some older songs are often rewritten, not with the words, but with newer melodies, newer notes, so that the same wonderful deep words are sung, but maybe with a tune that resonates more for today. Well, I probably spent too much time on that, so we'll move on. Fifth, we should strive for excellence, not performance in instrumentation. Now, some wrongly conclude that since what matters is the heart of the worshipers, that um, it doesn't really matter. If you want to lead in worship, you come on up. Sarah and I had a friend, well, we lived in the Dallas area, and he'd grown up in a church where they kind of took that approach. And there was a, so they basically said, if you want to sing during the offertory, you come on up. And there was one man who would often come up and often sing the same song and sing the same song very poorly. <laughs> and our friend would recount to us that, you know, though the idea, the motivation was good, it didn't lead anyone in the congregation to worship. You know, it led most of them trying not to laugh or trying not to feel embarrassed the whole time. You know, so we should look for those who are gifted in instrumentation and that it's not a distraction. Uh, you know, as they sing, it's pleasing to other people. It helps others. Even in the Old Testament, Second Chronicles 29-25, we see that God had some Levites set apart for instrumentation and singing. You know, that was their specific role. Well, last on this sixth, songs should reflect a variety of themes and emotions. You know, I don't know if you've been in a worship service where the, it will begin by someone saying, you know, for the next hour, I want you to just forget about everything that's in your life and focus on God. Now, I understand what they're trying to say, but I think what might be better to say is rather than forgetting about everything in your life, bring everything that is in your life to God. You know, we bring our anxieties that we have. We bring our sorrows that we have. We bring our joys that we have. I think that's important because often today, modern worship emphasizes joy, celebration, which is a wonderful emotion. Due to the resurrection of Jesus, we should have joy and celebration. Yet, if that's the constant note, the constant theme, then when you have trials in your life, you're not so sure you want to go. And as we look at God's character and as we look at all the Psalms, we see a variety. Some of the Psalms are very lamentful. They're called Psalms of Lament. And in our worship, we should have Times of joy. We should have times of reflection. We should have times where we realize, hey, we should, it's okay to be sad together. And so in our worship, we should ex seek to express those same emotions. Well, some reflecting questions on that. Why do you think music is so powerful? Yeah, and that's why people have argued both ways for using, you know, some people say Luther used the tunes of what were sung in the bars. Some people say, oh, that's wonderful because tunes they knew. And other people, well, I don't want to remember. I don't want to hear a tune that I sang in the bar. I, so people say, well, we should use tunes that the culture uses. Other go, no, I don't want to remember the tunes I sang in culture. So it kind of goes both ways on that. How do we, though, sometimes act as though our preferences for singing are actually the principles for singing and kind of look down on other churches when really if we back up, that's our preference and we're not actually applying a principle of God's word? 
This maybe doesn't happen as much as it used to in the late 90s, early 2000s with the worship wars, so to speak. other people how do we sometimes take our preferences and this is God's word I think they would say it's not in the New Testament. But I'm with you on that one. <laughs> but yeah, but then some, I mean, on the extreme, the churches who use instruments are wrong. Now, I'm not, they, I don't think all churches who take that view would say that, but some would. And on the flip side, those who don't use instruments are wrong. Well, you know, there's not necessarily anything wrong with not using instruments. Um, but we can take what we're used to and apply. You know, one example, I'm not saying this is a good genre for worship, but, you know, a lot of people rap. It's like, oh, that, that's style of music that's sinful. But, you know, in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of Christians who have made, they call it more hip-hop now. I'm not, I'm not hip, so I don't really know all that stuff. But make some really beautiful songs that have great theology and hip-hop. And, you know, it's, they're beautiful. I mean, better than a lot of other songs. And yet we people, oh, that's wrong. Well, that's just a style. That's just a musical instrumentation. What are the words saying? And now you could argue, well, that's a bad style. But nonetheless, we can redeem certain styles of music and use them. But moving on, the fourth essential. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the fourth essential is preaching the word. Now, it's been common for many decades now, maybe even a couple centuries, I don't know. People say that, well, look, we need to move away from preaching to, and then you could fill in the blank. You know, we might need more drama, or we need, bre we need more technology. There's so many great videos out now. Or we need a discussion. You know, we need more of an open environment where everyone has 
equal input instead of one person preaching. However, while some of those might have some valid points at some places, you know, we want to derive our teaching as well as our practice from the Bible. So let's look at what the Bible says about preaching. Um, Tracy, do you have the next verse? Could you turn to Mark 1, 38? Sue, could you turn to Luke 4, 43? Sarah, Mark 3, 14? Stephanie, Acts 10, 42? And David, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. So first, we're going to see... Jesus' ministry through Mark 1 and Luke 4. Yes, if sorry, go ahead. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. So Jesus came out to preach, or Luke 4 43. I was sent for this purpose to preach. Now, that's not all Jesus did. He also healed. He went to meals. He talked to people individually. But one of the primary aspects of his ministries, and we'll also see of his disciples, was to preach. Thus, Mark 3.14, when Jesus sends out his disciples, he says... So he sent them out to preach. And that wasn't just before he rose. Acts 10.42, it says. The commandments that preach to the people were to testify that he was the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. So Jesus commanded them to preach to the people. And then this continues not just for the apostles. This is passed down. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Now, Jesus never commands us to go out and heal, but he does command us to preach. Uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle, one of England's greatest preachers, wrote, The brightest days of the church have been those when preaching was honored. The darkest days of the church have been those when it was lightly esteemed. Let us honor the sacraments and public prayers of the church and reverently use them, but let us not place them above preaching. Now here, we need to be careful that as with singing, we don't allow a certain style of preaching to be seen as the only legitimate way we preach. You know, here we value expositional preaching, where we make a point of the, pa the point of the passage, the point of the sermon. But we do need to realize there have been and there are good preachers whose main diet is topical. You know, we could probably all give reasons why we think that's not the best. But at the end of the day, most of those arguments are pragmatic. You know, they're not, I, I agree with most of them, but there's not a verse that says you have to start at the beginning of a book and preach to the end. If they're preaching God's word and faithfully not just highlighting certain aspects, then we should honor those preachers as well. Um, as well, we should add that the, ultimately the sermon, like everything else, focuses on what God has done, who he is, and then after that, our response. You know, thus, the sermons are not just for evangelism or not just for edification they're both because if we're preaching god's word as we should it's about christ all of it is and we need christ just as much as unbelievers so each sermon should have application both for unbelievers and believers and though there are times for group discussion try to have that in here some on wednesday night you know i think it's saying something when we're silent and we listen you know, we don't go, wait, hold on, we need to add something to that. No, but God's word is spoken, and in response, we act. We don't add our input to what he has said. Uh, and I think it's important to note that this is still part of worship. We haven't moved like, okay, well, we got done with singing, now we're done with the worship part. Now, this is another part of the service. You know, how we engage in the sermon is part of worship and not just for the preacher. You know, we should be eagerly engaging, humbly receiving, and actively responding to the sermon. You know, the whole time is a time of worship, not just the singing or on the flip side, not just the sermon. Some people treat the singing, everything else. Well, that's just kind of like 
preemptive appetizers. Now we're preaching. Now we're at the important part. No, all of it's important from the beginning to the end. And one of the best ways we engage is by preparing for worship Saturday night. You know, making sure that we're not up late, not doing things Saturday night or Sunday morning that are causing us to come in here and distracted and not able to focus on worship. But don't we have to ask, you know, today people have really short attention spans. You know, don't we need to do stuff that is going to not bore them? You're saying yes, sir? Okay, good point. At the same time, I think that people need to be stretched. I mean, it, it's very easy for, for us to go, yeah, people's attention spans are shorter, so we're going to cater to that. And there has to be a balance in there somewhere. Yeah. yeah. I remember in seminary, or maybe after saying, if you go to a church where the average length of preaching is 15 minutes, it's not going to be helpful to just start preaching 40 minutes. So you need to start where the people are at and help them grow. You, know, you can't just lurch them somewhere else. And not that, I mean, there's nothing magical about 40 minutes. We haven't hit 40. The sermon is okay now. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, when you're used to it, you hear a 15 minute sermon, you go. You're like, we're done already? I'm thinking, what do you do the rest of the time? Your seatbelts, you know. Seat belts, you know well, there's no deep theology. Well, in those churches. Well, I can't speak for each one. I think in general, those, the thought is all of the service is communicating this. Kind of like we were saying earlier. So I don't have to give a long sermon because the songs and the meditations and normally they have more. Yeah, we're communicating through our readings and other things, so we don't have to spend as long. So, nonetheless. Do you, th- I mean, I, well, this is kind of a softball question here. We'll just change it. Why do you think preaching is not emphasized? If I ask, is it? Not in our church, but across the U.S. Why is preaching not a super emphasized activity? And what, well, maybe a better question is what is kind of seen as more important? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We'll end with this. I'll just say real quick about giving and baptism. You know, I think we could see from First Corinthians sixteen nine. There's times where it says to set up for the beginning of the week um, and baptism and Lord's Supper. Again, we said these don't have to be every week, but I'll end with this little anecdote. I said this a couple weeks ago, but part of the issue is that the church leaders are leading in this, you know, it's not that people are just clamoring for it, though that's true, but when we were in Ohio, there's a pastor I knew, and he was friends with another pastor, and he was starting a church plant. And before they started, they were very, visiting various churches. And he would write about them. And almost invariably, everything he wrote was his experience. How were the greeters? How was the singing? Like, not just the... How did everything go? And not once did he ever comment on the what was sung. Not once did he ever comment on what the pastor said. And I'm thinking, well, this is what we're planting this is you know if the pastor's not caring about this but all he cares is how well was the child care in regards to how we felt when we dropped them off. how well do we feel well then that's the type of churches 
we're going to have. So it's a little discouraging to me. So again, but we emphasized earlier, that doesn't mean we shouldn't care about those things. We shouldn't care. Well, God's word is important. So who cares if we have razor blades in the nursery? We're going to preach God's word. Uh, you know, we should, if someone comes in, they should feel safe in that we're not going to be like, ah, yeah, we'll just give you, we just let the kids go afterwards. Don't let it worry about it. So we don't have to be either or. Any other thoughts as we wrap up? It doesn't have to be long-winded, but one of your points under singing, we should strive for excellence, not performance and instrumentation. Is there anything to reconcile in Christian concerts? What do you mean to... So a concert, with some would say that that's performance-based, but their songs are uh, God's truth, God's word, Yeah. To just raise hands, can they clap? And then how does how do we deal with that in the church as well? Yeah, so there's two levels there. One, in regards to a concert, I mean I don't see anything necessarily wrong with Christians wanting to gather. I would make a little bit of a distinction between, you know, what we do not saying that what we do during the week is different than what we do on Sunday, but saying it's a different atmosphere. Um, you know, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Is it ever okay to clap in church? I don't necessarily think it's wrong. I think it's, why are we doing it? Um, the question might be, well, why would we have something there that we would clap for? I don't know. Uh, but, you know, I think... Okay, when you say clapping, you mean applause. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Applause for after someone finishes singing or... Uh, I think there's some people's response, like you know, they're embracing churches. Yeah. Like some people's response is that is beautiful, and so how do I respond to it? Yeah. All that Jesus is calling. Yeah. I mean, one. This might not be answering what you're asking, but kind of the celebrity culture of musicians. I don't know that that's very helpful. They're just, you know, if they're leading us in worship. I don't know that I should be like, oh, but no, nah, I'm probably not answering your question very well, but we can punt for next week some of that time. <laughs>